You're listening to Trial by Media, a behind-the-scenes true crime podcast. We'll lift the lid on crime and how it's covered, bringing you the biggest cases from Britain's courts. You've read the coverage. Here's the full story. This episode is all about the money. You'll be hearing from Josh Meller, Sophia Daru, Cameron Charters, and I'm your host, Carolina Haranskar. Chelsea head coach Frank Lampard, the late Leicester City chairman Vichai Strivadahana Brava, and socialite Tamara Eccleston were all victims of a series of robberies in December last year. A gang of international thieves are said to have carried out the organised raids, in which they swiped and laundered 26 million worth of watches, jewellery and cash. Four people connected with the heist are currently being tried for the part they played in the break-ins. So, Josh, who were the criminals in this case? Well, as we speak, they are not convicted criminals. They are alleged criminals who we refer to as defendants. Yeah, that's an important distinction to make. It's very important because uh, they're currently on trial, which should be have concluded by the time anyone listens to this. Um, but to answer your question, their names are uh, Maria Mester, who's 47, her son, Emil Bogdan Savastro, who's 30, and then two other gentlemen, Sorin Markovici and Alexandru Stan, who are both around 50 years old. Maria Mester is uh, Romanian and she lives in Milan. Her son, Emil Bogdan Savastro, lives in London. And the two other gentlemen, Markovici and Stan, also live in London. And they're all alleged to have helped the actual burglars in different ways on different dates. So these guys aren't the actual burglars. So the the four that are on trial now are are called the supporting cast. (laughs) Right. Because they are basically alleged to have helped the burglary team travel around London, that sort of thing, and drive them for reconnaissance. So how do these guys relate to the four actual burglars? And, And who are the actual burglars? So the burglars, they are four individuals who we can't name at the moment because they haven't been on trial yet who travelled from Italy for about two weeks to commit three burglaries in London. Three burglaries that raked in about £26 million at least. And uh, one of them was allegedly known to Maria Mester. She has told the jurors that she was an escort in Milan, or is an escort, and that um, one of the alleged burglars was one of her customers over a number of years. She's charged with two things, along with her son conspiracy to commit burglary on the three addresses that were burgled in December and also conspiracy to remove criminal property. So it's basically money laundering. It's what you do with the property once it's stolen. So she, she's alleged to have helped bring the some of the stolen jewellery out of the country or dispose of it somehow and also bought a number of luxury goods and gift cards from Harrods with um, the spoils. Okay. So that's Maria Mester and her son, and they're linked to each other because they're family, and in turn both linked to the four mystery burglars in this supporting cast sort of role. So you mentioned two others who are also on trial at the moment. Who are they, and what are their links to the wider conspiracy? Yeah, so there's um, Maria Mester, her son. There's a security worker called Sorin Markovici, who lived in East London, He has admitted meeting the burglars for dinner on one day. He's only alleged to have helped them the day before, but they've charged him with a full conspiracy to burgle. 
and then Alexandru Stan, who's a um, hotel concierge slash night porter, who's just moved to England and was an aspiring business studies student. He is alleged to have helped the two burglars after the first burglary, which I haven't mentioned, on Frank Lampard's house, when um, they set off the alarm and only managed to steal about £60,000 worth of luxury goods like watches and cufflinks. So he's alleged to have given them a change of trousers and booked them a cab after the burglary because one of them cut their hand as they were, um, or probably cut their hand as they were leaving in a hurry. So you mentioned the hotel concierge slash aspiring business student who helped two of the alleged burglars. So I'm assuming the two others jumped on the bandwagon during the following raids. So give me a chronological run through of the three burglaries. Okay, so the first burglary was at the start of December. It was on the 1st of December 2019. It was on Frank Lampard's house. It was two of the alleged burglars only. There's really clear CCTV. They climbed in through the back garden and then they went up to the first floor balcony, couldn't get in, went to the second floor balcony, grabbed a few lovely watches and a pair of cufflinks and then legged it when the police turned up out front. The second burglary was 10 days later. It was the full four alleged burglars was on um, the deceased Leicester City owner Vichai Sridharanaparava's house, which was in Kensington, just near um, Harrods. The four alleged burglars forced their way in through a patio door again. This time they didn't set any alarm off and they had about an hour to look through the whole house and smash into one of the safes, stealing £1 million in cash and jewellery. The third burglary was three days later on the 13th of December. It was by far the most lucrative burglary and it was by far the most remarkable considering how much security was there on um, Billionaire's Row, Kensington. Armed police out front, two full-time security guards, perimeter alarms. They raked in £25 in jewellery so they emptied out one of the jewellery cabinets and just the, the, the way they got so lucky that they weren't seen by the security guards, they didn't set off the perimeter alarm, they managed to open the back door and they managed to get away after an hour inside. It's just um, unbelievable. And that, that last one was Tamara Eccleston's house. Yes, sorry, that was Tamara Eccleston's house. Um, Tamara and Jay, Tamara Eccleston and Jay Rutland uh, live at 8 Palace Green, which is also known as Billionaire's Row. And they had just gone on holiday to Lapland, which they'd posted on Instagram, which may or may not have assisted the alleged burglars. So they posted about them going on holiday before they left their house vacant? Uh, no, they, on the day they posted that they were going away. And the house has also been on uh, reality TV. So that they've had, they had a reality TV show on ITV2, I think it was. So broadcasting their home in that way might have made them a target. I think it probably could have helped anybody planning a burglary uh, target the right people and um, maybe have a little bit of a look inside their house before they go. Needless to say that that the house is amazing. It's something like 50 plus rooms where the jewellery was kept was in a room called the vault, which had a reinforced door. I think it had been um, deactivated for a while. I think when they moved in, they, they used it as a dressing room and I don't think it had like the the reinforced lock, I don't think it worked, but there was still a door lock to get into that area. So how would you describe the overall style of the burglars? I would say the burglars were pretty opportunistic. They clearly targeted three celebrity homes, so there must have been some quite sophisticated research leading up to it, but the style that they went in with seems to say to me that they were just having a go 
the last one, one of the security guards said they were very, very lucky. They happened to break in at the time when the family were away. One of the security guards was out and one or two people were coming and going. So it was just at that time when people were distracted and the alarm was off that they managed to get into the house. But one of the barristers has raised a theory that it may have been an inside job because of just how well protected that house was. It had a perimeter alarm. It had two security guards. All of the doors inside the house were supposedly locked and they managed to spend an hour in there. That's what one of the barristers is saying. Although how that helps his client, Maria Mester, is not quite clear, but he has definitely raised some questions about how they could have been so lucky. Oh, wow. So you think the alleged inside job could be linked to someone who works for Tamara Ecclestone? Uh, I couldn't say. All, all will be revealed. I think probably by his closing speech, uh, we'll be able to see where he was going with it. So maybe I'll give you an update then. Boodles, a high-end jewellers in Mayfair, became the target of an Ocean's Eleven-style diamond heist in 2016. A team of criminals disguised as investors would lure the jeweler's chairman into a fake deal at a meeting in Monaco. Later, a con artist calling herself Anna would visit the high-end store and perform a slate of hands, swapping seven million worth of diamonds for worthless pebbles. Sophia, you covered this very interesting case. Some of the criminals are currently being extradited to stand trial here in the UK, and one woman has recently stood trial. So let's roll back. Who were the criminals and what was the plan? So they were an international gang, which included uh, Michael Jovanovic, Christopher Stankovic, Lulu Lakados, two women still to be identified, and the defendant in this case, Georgetta Danila, we should say has been cleared of her part in the plot. The aim, to borrow the language used by the police, was exactly to carry out a sophisticated raid, not unlike the ones portrayed in the Ocean's Eleven films. They targeted uh, the high-end jeweler Boodles, uh, their Bond Street branch, and they stole over 7 million worth of gems. Wow. How did they fool the jewelers? So, um, Boodles chairman, Nicholas Wainwright, was contacted a month before the heist by a man calling himself Simon Glass, who said he wanted to invest in diamonds. He agreed to meet Glass and two men who were introduced to him as Russian associates, uh, business partners in Monaco. After some back and forth in emails and so on, they settled on seven items worth £7,299,671. Right. Prior to the sale, Glass asked, he asked whether he could have his own gemologist, that's somebody who specializes in diamonds, to evaluate the gems prior to the exchange, which the Boodle's chairman found fair enough. In March 2016, a woman calling herself Anna showed up at the store to do just that. The agreement was that after the evaluations, the gems would be kept in a locked bag and placed in the Boodle safe. And as soon as the payment came through, Boodles would hand them over. So Anna showed up at the Bond Street branch. Mr. Wainwright, the Boodle's chairman, described her as acting a little bit odd. So she couldn't speak English. She didn't look at the diamonds with the magnifying glass. She didn't tick all of the gemology boxes. Well... Anna was looking at the uh, at the diamonds. Mr. Wainwright was on the phone with Simon Glass, and he had to step out briefly because they were in the basement and the signal was bad, and left Anna alone with uh, Boodle's own in-house gemologist. When he returned, 
His gemologist appeared quite frightened. She said that Anna had put the bag in her handbag, but took it out shortly after. So the chairman looked through Anna's bag, but found it empty save for a mini umbrella. And at any rate, the locked bag was on the table. So when the chairman was on the phone to Simon Glass, coincidentally at the same time that Anna was... Simon Glass told him, I can't hear you very well. They were in the basement. He had to go up the stairs to basically get better signal. And Simon Glass has nothing to do with this whole thing? Well, I think Simon Glass very much has to do with the whole thing. They're all part of the same gang. Okay. Um, And what happened next? So, uh, Mr. Wainwright, the Boodle's chairman, he looked in her bag, but it seemed empty save for a mini umbrella. And at any rate, the locked bag with presumably the jewels, was on the table. Unbeknownst to them, the area was surrounded by um, Anna's alleged accomplices. As soon as she stepped out, it is said she was caught on camera giving something the size of a purse to another woman who placed it inside her bag. And prosecutors say that this was because if the alarm somehow was raised and Anna was stopped, then they wouldn't find anything on her. So at that point, she'd already swapped the gems. That is the implication. And how did she do that? Well, as far as I understood it, uh, the the locked bag where the uh, diamonds were meant to be held was quite small. So I'm guessing, and that's completely conjecture on my part, but given that the bag was empty safe for the mini umbrella, I would say she probably stuffed it inside her umbrella. But there is no way to know. She just did a swap, a sleight of hand. Yes, one locked bag for another. Okay. So... When did the Boodle staff realise that the diamonds were in fact pebbles? So, the Boodle's chairman left on a business trip and left the matter with his son Jody Wainwright. When the money didn't come through, uh, the son started to get suspicious. So he told his staff to to take the bag to Heathrow to have it x-rayed, but the scan showed something that was the right size, was sort of the right texture, but they couldn't tell for sure. So Mr. Wainwright, their youngest, said, right, he just uh, instructed his staff to break the lock, even though that was against the agreement. And he was on the phone call when staff broke the lock inside Boodles, I think, and he heard one of them say, oh my God, it's Pebbles. Okay, so who is Danilla? Because you were there during Danilla's trial. What was her role? She clearly got cleared, as we stated. What impression did you get of her? This is what we know. We know that uh, Danila arrived in the UK with Lacanus, which uh, the prosecution alleges is Anna. They shared a hotel. The morning before the heist, they took a taxi to Victoria and went into a pub. Danila stayed there with their luggage while Anna went off to allegedly carry out the heist. When Anna returned to the pub, Danila followed her into the bathroom with the luggage bag and Anna changed an outfit and I think Danila also took off her cardigan. They both boarded the Eurostar separately and left for France. Everyone involved in this had left the country within three hours of the theft. Wow. Danila, well, for a sophisticated heist, she was just this slightly housewife-looking middle-aged lady who was just sat in the dock looking frightened and frumpy and was communicating via an interpreter. So we think that this whole 
heist was masterminded by some other participants other than Danilla, who seems to have just been this sort of, I'll wait in the pub whilst they carry out the heist. Well, the jury think that she, that they couldn't be sure that she knew what she was doing because her defense was that she had no idea what the others were planning. I think she thought it was some kind of business trip. Her alleged role in the heist was very, um, she was basically hold, keeping the table at the pub with the luggage. <laughs> so she isn't really Ocean's Eleven uh, caliber. Okay, so last question. Were the diamonds ever recovered? Nope. And I'm guessing whoever, whoever came up with the whole heist possibly gotten away with it. In 2015, an underground safe deposit facility in Hatton Garden, London, was burgled by a gang of seasoned criminals. They walked out with around 14 million worth of jewellery and cash. The Hatton Garden safe deposit burglary has been called the largest burglary in British legal history. Cameron, what happened in the Hatton Garden heist? The um, Hatton Garden case really became something of a British classic in underworld chic and style. It was uh, perpetrated by a gang who were largely over the 50-60 mark in years who dubbed themselves the, the Diamond Weezers, which I think is a play on Diamond Geezer. <laughs> they were this really gaggle of uh, pretty hardened criminals, some in a very serious way. But just to rattle out a few names, there was um, Brian Reader, Kenny Collins, Michael Seed, to name a few. The trial was not so much a trial for the first part because a great many of them admitted the offence and involvement. But Michael Seed, who was 58 at the time and now 60, contested the offence after he was arrested some three years after the original court hearing at the Old Bailey with others. And do we know why he was arrested three years afterwards? His involvement in it was somewhat harder to pinned down because he's, his his face was never recorded on CCTV, though his gait, which was likened to that of Charlie Chaplin at the trial, uh, and this was at Woolwich Crown Court, was so his walk was likened to um, Charlie Chaplin. He wore an orange wig to disguise himself. It was always someone... In the actual court, he wore he wore the bright orange... Oh, no, 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 no sorry, my, <laughs> my, my fault. In the, uh... In the raid? In the raid, yes. He, yeah, he was quite eccentric, but he didn't go to, to that extent, no. <laughs> Glad we clarified that. So, who was Michael Seed? What, what does he do? Give me a little bit about him. Well, he was really a, somewhat of a recluse. I went to his home, actually, which was on Liverpool Road, which is in Islington. Islington's in North London. He lived in a council house, which would cost you £105 per week to rent. His father was actually quite an eminent biological scientist who worked, funnily enough, worked on DNA. A chapter of the university, and Michael Seed, who was known as Basil for reasons I'll explain later, his father's work didn't actually result in his son's conviction. Michael Seed then went to Nottingham University, and he had a conviction for the supplying of LSD and cannabis from 1984. And he was jailed in three years, but released after serving 21 months. And this is when he began to move into the Hatton Garden area of London. And by the early 2000s, was associated with Kenny Collins and Brian Reader, who were, in the case of Mr Reader, really quite serious criminals with a serious and feared past. Mm, and 
fast forward to 2015, by the time they committed the crimes, most of them were grey-haired pensioners, right? Well, yes, I mean, their ages. Kenny Collins was 78, Brian Reader was 80, and the others were in that region from 50 to 80 upwards. So this was sort of one last crime before they sort of give up? I think that was how it was in the Michael Caine and Ray Winston film about it. I think that was very much the uh, line, the, the one last job. So before you said that Michael Seed was known as Basil, could you explain why that is? Yes, well, there's a very um, very charming and uh, gentlemanly um, Guardian crime reporter called uh, Duncan Campbell, who, through his contacts, realised that Basil stood for best alarm specialist in London. And that's that's what that's how he got the nickname because you know Mike, you know Michael Seed and Basil it's not it's not necessarily obvious. So I'm assuming that he his role in the heist was something to do with the with the alarms then. Very much so. I mean, when police raided his home, the police, being the flying squad from the uh, Metropolitan Police, they found parts of alarms which had been sort of tinkered with, deconstructed, moderated. He was. Really there as someone to deactivate the alarms at the Hatton Garden Safety Deposit Centre. And he was also one of the raiders who, I believe, crept through a 25cm by 45cm hole, cut in the wall before the vaults by its diamond-tipped drill. And then once they got inside where the inside the vault where the safety deposit boxes were, they grabbed the gems and ingots and cash. Uh, which is worth over £14 million, and this was on the Easter weekend of 2015. He was jailed, Michael Seed, for 10 years after trial last year, and what was his defence? His defence was really denial of involvement. I mean, he really did win the jury over in a lot of instances, and he was um, he was very witty. It's quite likeable in a way, and he said in the witness box while giving evidence, um, I am not Basil. So he really did say he wasn't Basil. He was tried for the break-in at the Hatton Garden and also for another robbery, sorry, burglary, which I'll mention, and also possession of criminal property. And it was a straight denial on all counts. And he, he, he you know, I mean, he pushed it as, very, as far as you could get. The verdicts weren't unanimous, they were majority. And I think at least one was a majority of 10 to 2. Um, the significance of that being, uh, had it been any less, he wouldn't have been convicted. It may have been a hung or an acquittal. The other, the other case he was involved in was some years earlier, I think it was in 2010, at a jewellery shop in sort of the Bond Street area where the likes of um, Amel uh, Clooney, as she now is George Clooney's uh, wife, I think it's Amel, I'm not very good on this sort of thing, got a lot of their jewellery from. There was a glove recovered from the safety deposit box. The DNA in there would match that of Michael Seed. So that, that, that was how he was linked to the offences. Okay. And lastly, what happened to the rest of the jewellery raiders? Well, one of them has got dementia and is currently saying that this means he cannot pay back the amounts which he is said to have benefited from the raid. The others are either still in prison or have just served their sentences. And that's it for this episode. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe and leave us a lovely review. We really appreciate it. You heard from Josh Meller, Sophia Derue, Cameron Charters, and I'm the host and producer, Carolina Haranskar. See you next time.